You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And what we find in chapter 4, the last part of chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, if this is the first time you've opened a Bible, the, the big numbers of the chapters added later by scholars to help us navigate in the smaller numbers of the verses. And so we're going to begin in verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. And, and next week in, in chapter 5 begins the, the most popular, the most, right, the most examined and studied, the most famous sermon ever recorded, known as the Sermon on the Mount. But before Jesus begins his public teaching that we see uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, we find here Matthew introducing us to what Jesus is like. And in this sense, Jesus goes public. Up to this point, we've seen how Jesus identifies with those that, that you wouldn't expect him to identify with. He identifies with sinners. He, he identifies with outcasts. And, and so even the first story of the Bible is a lineage. It's a, it's a genealogy of, of really some really disturbing family stories. And yet we find Jesus, instead of saying, those aren't my people, Jesus says, no, no, I, those are my people. I, I'm going to identify with those people. He's baptized publicly, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him in a miraculous way. And, and, and John the Baptist, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, baptizes him and, and says what you and I would likely say if we saw Jesus. Like, why would I baptize you? You should baptize me. Why are you in my place? And from there, we see the trajectory of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus taking the place of repentant sinners. Even last week, going into the wilderness, being tempted by the devil, but succeeding where Adam had failed. In his wandering and, and starvation in the wilderness, he was obedient where Israel had wandered into the desert and failed. We find that Jesus then fulfills the deepest longings of our hearts. He succeeds where we fail. So, as we're introduced to Jesus by Matthew, we begin what, in many sense, in many kind of ways or many senses, is like is the second major section of Matthew. And I'll, I'll point it out for you when we, when we come across it in just a moment. But I want to read to you, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 4, the Gospel of Matthew, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested... He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, 
in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus goes public. Jesus invites people to join him, to follow him. And this is the encouragement. Jesus heals what is broken. Jesus goes, we see here in the first section, into the dark places. To the obscure places. The places we see here is Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, the places marked by the shadow of death. And he goes to them as the king. He calls these people to himself and he begins to heal all that is devastated. I've been trying to show you from the beginning of our time in Matthew where this is leading. Beginning, I hope, with the end in mind. And so the very last verses of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells these people, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We've seen up to this point, he's been introduced by Matthew as a king. The lineage of David, the son of David, taking the rightful place, born as a king. Even even, even the magi who traveled, uh, pagans, Gentiles who traveled a far distance following this miraculous appearance of a star. Treat him even as a child, as what? As a king. Offering the kinds of gifts you see in in Ecclesiastes, the, the, the wisdom of Solomon bringing to a king. Therefore, he says then, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And after that, promising that he will never leave them or forsake them. So get this. Matthew is introducing us to Jesus in such a way that the very last thing he leaves us with is an exclamation of his kingship and rule and his invitation to follow, as well as a commissioning to go, to invite others to follow. And Matthew is in many ways building a case so that by the time Jesus says, I've got all the authority, all the authority in heaven and earth, follow me, go now, make other disciples of me, right? I don't, he wouldn't, that's not a grammatically easy way to say it, but there you go, right? When he says that, Matthew's leading us to believe that that's a compelling case and we would follow him. So much so, That you and I, even as we gather today, we bear witness to this. We bear witness to this. I could be wrong, but I don't know that many of you are ethnically Jewish. I'd love to meet you if you are. But instead, for the most part, in this room, we represent a gathering of people who are representing the ends of the earth. This movement started, right, a continent and an ocean away. And yet we, even in our gathering bear witness that this thing that Jesus claimed for himself and passed on to his disciples 
is alive and well even today. We're still talking about this Jesus. We're still compelled to follow in his footsteps. So, if I were to kind of outline these three sections and, and in many ways outline the, this passage before we get to this great teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that we'll see a beginning tomorrow in chapter 5, I think also we find here an anatomy of a disciple. And in so doing, we kind of have an outline for this passage. So if you were to ask, all right, come and follow me, Jesus says, so that you will make disciples. What then is a disciple, Matthew? Where are you taking us? And, and here I think you find in this passage at least three, if not more, I would say like kind of components of a disciple. One, disciples are the primary audience for his teaching. Right? From here on out, you will see the disciples gathering with others, but the disciples gathering and listening to his teaching following it, what it is that Jesus is teaching and saying that he is, taking it to heart and being changed by it. Second, you see a collective witness to his works of power. Right? You saw that here, that, that these disciples following him got firsthand, like they were eyewitnesses to these miraculous deeds Jesus was performing. But not only that, as he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will compel you, like the fishermen that you are, like the way that you bring in fish, I'm going to give you something more powerful and more miraculous. The way that you bring in fish, I'm going to be lifted up and you're going to proclaim it and it will bring in souls. And so he invites them to be active helpers in the task of fishing for people. Those are the three things I think you see here, right? You see the, the onset of Jesus' teaching, calling them to repent for a kingdom of which he is the king that is now present in addition, they, they bear witness. They, they are the ones who have seen Jesus do mighty works, and then they're the ones compelled and sent out. In the same way that what they were doing was kind of fishing, he says, no, 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 I'm going to teach you what this is really like. And in many ways, those are the sections of this passage. You see in the very first section, you see Jesus going to a dark place and calling people and teaching them to repent. Why? Because there's a kingdom. And that kingdom is being brought by a king, and that king is unlike any king you've ever met. And then secondly, he calls them out of that. This good news makes them into fishers of men, disciples of Jesus, followers in his way. And then they bear witness to miraculous deeds that Jesus performs. So let's walk through those together. Think of the components of this passage or like, there's, there's a sense in which Jesus is going into the dark places, and, and the first section kind of hinges upon or is built around this quotation from Isaiah chapter 9. And I would commend you, I would commit it to you to read, to enjoy, uh, just like many of the other quotations that, uh, that, Jesus, uh, that Jesus does here and that Matthew even does, especially. He's saying that this is not a new thing. He quotes Old Testament passages so that you and I would know that Jesus is not a plan B. This is, this is a part of what God is doing. And, and it, it begins to invite us to, to, to begin to pro, I propose to you to consider a mystery, that you're in this room. And just like Matthew would say, this is exactly how God meant, you're in this room, and this is exactly where God meant you to be. I know, you wish God had meant for you to be somewhere else, right? A place with palm trees, maybe, Right? And yet we're proposed here a mystery. Your life is not an accident. Your story is not haphazard. It's brought you to this place. It's exactly as God meant for it to be. It will be a backdrop for an amazing work of grace. 
Jesus then calls individuals to himself through, you see here in verse 17, repentance. And we saw that this is word for word what John the Baptist began. If, if you think of John the Baptist as like the, the, in the period of four centuries of silence, John is the, the forerunner, the prophetic connection between the Old Testament, promises that were made, and, and John is introducing us to Jesus who will fulfill each and every one of those promises. And so Jesus picks up and word for word is saying the same kinds of things that John was baptizing people as a baptism of repentance. Jesus says, leave everything then. Leave everything and follow me. We see then in the next section that Jesus calls that good news. Did you hear that in verse 23? Going throughout Galilee, teaching, proclaiming this kingdom as good news. The gospel, that word gospel literally means good news. The good news of this kingdom. And then we see the good news of this kingdom is seen in his healing ministry. He is miraculously taking what is broken and he is making everything new. haphazardly speaking, maybe accidentally, because he, I say accidentally because he later says, don't tell anyone until I tell you to tell everyone, which is the last thing he says, Jesus becomes famous. It's right to see here that Jesus is, is in many ways, some commentarians have spoken of this, Jesus would have been known as the most famous person on the earth at this particular point. Becomes known. He's the most amazing person you can imagine. So in that first section, beginning in, in verse 12, it says that Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, who, who had a, a, a pretty profound following himself, John starts to speak out. You see this in the, other, in the other gospel. Starts to speak out against Herod. He starts to speak out against an illicit relationship that, that Herod has. And John has enough influence that Herod throws him in prison. We'll get back to him in chapter 11. However, at this point, Jesus knew that it, it would be best for him to withdraw being associated with John, and quite literally having the exact same message of John, he withdraws. It says that he hears that John's been arrested, and so he withdraws. Now, it's really interesting because there's many reasons that make this a good move. He leaves the, the kind of the, the center of, of this particular culture, that it was, would have been Jerusalem, and he withdraws, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, to Galilee. In your own map, in your head, think of like there's a Sea of Galilee. The River Jordan runs straight down the middle of it, or right down the middle of what we would describe as the ancient Near East into the Dead Sea. And just west of the River Jordan is the city of Jerusalem, up on a hill, higher up, right? That's why you'll hear the language of they go up to Jerusalem, right? They're speaking topographically. They're going up in elevation to Jerusalem. And so in this sense, he goes down. He goes out, right? He goes to the lowlands, the place of Galilee. Now, Jesus knew that, in this sense, the, he's much less likely to have direct opposition from, from the prominent leaders in Jerusalem if he moves out. Other commentarians point out that Galilee was, in fact, a place of travel. Even though it was sparsely populated, even though it was kind of desolate, it was out there, it still was a place of travel and trade, right? That's true of our state, is it not? Right? Like, there's not a lot of people who live, but there's a lot of people who drive through, right? There's a, there's a, there's a long, you know, get on, get on the highway, turn on the, turn on the cruise control, get in the back seat, wake up in Rapid City, right? It's like, it's desolate. There's not a lot there, but in that sense, it's still a, a, a massive thoroughfare. It also, I think other commentarians point out that it was a good base for ministry because it was a trade route. And there was significant population, even though it was scattered out. 
But notice that isn't what Matthew says is the reason for him going to Galilee, to the outside places. It says Jesus goes there to fulfill a promise, to fulfill something that God had intended. Look at there in verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is right out of Isaiah chapter 9. I can read it to you here. But there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2. People... The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Now that's the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 9. But I'll read them in just a moment here, and I want you to kind of connect the dots with what he's saying. It might have been a strategic thing for him to go out into the desolate places, but I, and to the dark places, but, but Matthew says there's something else going on here. Jesus begins beyond the river, out there, right? Now, think to yourself, which is more out there, right? The sticks or the boonies or boondocks, right? Depending on where you're from, one of them's out there. That's where Jesus starts, the outsiders. That's where he begins. Now, this is especially important for us. If you've been with us for this journey over the last few months through Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll remember there is a phrase spoken by the exiles over and over and over again, multiple times, especially in the book of Ezra, and a handful of times in Nehemiah. And there's a reference to a place, the land beyond the river. Do you remember it? The land beyond the river. Now, it was speaking of the Euphrates, right, which would have been east of the Jordan, but still in the Fertile Crescent. Now, for earlier generations, the land beyond the river would have represented the land of, of their fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for the people in exile, the, the phrase, the land beyond the river, meant the place of deportation, the place of being scattered. I want you to hear the good news in this. Jesus starts in those places. Jesus loves and cares for those people, right? This is, this is fun for everybody. What's those, what, you, know, you know that place you would never go? Right, last time I did this, I, I made fun of Iowa. But, but for today, let's say, you know the place you would never want to go? North Dakota, right? Why would you do that? That place you don't want to end up, that place you think, mm, that's, not, that's not where I want to be. Notice, that's where Jesus starts. And that's incredibly good news for us because all of the reasons that people might discount you, all of the reasons that you don't feel like you belong in every room you walk into, that's meant to, that's meant to point us to something. That, those, that, that feeling of being outside, that feeling of being that you don't belong, that you don't fit in, Jesus says, that's where I start. Here's a especially profound point for us. In Ezra and Nehemiah, I began every single week with a question. What's the place in your life where you want or need to experience renewal? What's the place in your life where you want or need to experience renewal? And Ezra and Nehemiah would have referred to that place geographically as the place beyond the river. The far place, right? The place of being dispersed and scattered. Did you hear where Jesus starts? 
I ask it again, where's the place in your life where you want or need to experience renewal? And I have good news. That's where Jesus wants to go. That's where Jesus starts. That's where he begins. He begins with the outsiders. Look at the rest of this passage. It's familiar, and you may not even realize it. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. This is Isaiah's picture of what will happen when God begins to put these broken exiles back together. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Do you hear it? In the desolate places, in the outside spaces, that's, that's where Jesus will go. That's where Jesus will begin. And this is, where, this, is, this is the end of that passage that we sing or maybe you have sung or, or we recite every Christmas, right? The season of Advent. Why, why is this going to happen? How is this going to come to pass? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is, doesn't that represent all the things that you wish you had? Don't you wish you had? Right? Don't you wish you had a sympathetic counselor? Don't you wish you had someone who knew how you felt, who could sympathize with you? Don't you wish you had someone who was mighty, who could fix all that's broken to overthrow all the things that are lopsided? Don't you wish you had a father who was perfect and loved you, showered you with affection and acceptance? Don't you wish you had peace? Isaiah says that's exactly what you're going to get, and Jesus is going to bring it. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, hear that language again? coming king to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this don't miss this when he says that jesus goes to galilee and spends time there now, now notice that that phrase there it says in verse 17 from this time now that phrase you're going to see again in the 16th chapter and most scholars believe that that breaks up Matthew into three major sections. An introduction to who Jesus is, which we've been walking through, to now what we would describe as his Galilean ministry. And I encourage you, you'll see in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks a question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter, the loudmouth, says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, right? And Jesus is like, man, your, your dad didn't teach you this, right? The Spirit of God has taught you this. And then immediately following that declaration of Jesus as the Christ, what does Jesus say? Or what, is, what does Matthew tell us about Jesus? From that time on, Jesus set his sights on going to the cross in Jerusalem, where he would have to be handed over and raised on the third day. You think of those as three major sections. And this is the end of the first one. And it begins with, from that time, he started in Galilee. And when we think Galilee, think the outsiders. Think those that are cast off. Think of what we're like in our sin, not deserving God's love or affection, the nobodies. Think of it this way. There was no worldly light shown upon them that you would even know who they are. Right? I, I bet a, a large amount of money you don't know anybody from Galilee. And yet that, in and of itself, is a testimony. 
it was on them. The place where no worldly light had shone, that Jesus went and shined a heavenly, eternal light. So too with us. The obscure, the outcast. That's where Jesus begins. And he says, and from that time, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Now, this is the same phrase we heard. It means to, to in this sense, to turn from, turn from other loyalties, turn from worshiping lesser things, turn from sin, turn from all of these things that rob us of, of our thriving joy in the world, and look to Jesus and find all of our thriving, all of our hope, and all of the good life in him. Because he's a king who's coming, and his kingdom is upside down. His, his, king is no, his kingdom is nothing like any kingdom you've ever seen, and we'll see that for the rest of the, of the, of the Gospel of Matthew, that this Jesus comes as a king unlike any others. And it's really beautiful, because after all, like even the best king at some point sends his subjects to go die for his political causes. But what's this king do? He jumps out in front of his subjects to die in their place so that they would experience peace, so that they would know that they are loved and cared for. Now, we talked about repentance as John the Baptist spoke of it two weeks ago, but think of it in the context of this particular passage, what is repentance? What does it mean to repent because a kingdom is at hand? A kingdom has arrived. Well, Matthew tells us, drop everything and follow Jesus who will miraculously heal and restore. Drop everything and follow this Jesus who calls out his followers and then starts a, a, a massive ministry of healing and restoration. So while repentance means so many things, to turn our heart and minds away from sin and look to the mercy that God gives us, right? Not a feigned kind of remorse, but instead to, to turn from our sin and look to Jesus. The Apostle Paul explains it this way, and it's very helpful in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He's, he's speaking of a, a call to repentance that he gave to them. He, he pointed out the sin that they had been living in and called them to, to live as children of light. And so he says here, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, grief produces death. I point that out because at least one of these aspects of this kingdom is that there's a way to feel bad, to feel insufficient, to feel like you're not enough, that leads to ultimately just resentment and regret. I don't know if that shackles you, but I, I live with regret. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. Right? That's all the time. And so grieving for the things that are awful isn't enough. He says that the right kind of grief causes you to throw yourself, in this case, in verse 17, on a king. On a king who will take all of the damage that you've caused. He will take all of the punishment you and I deserve. He'll take on our pains, our sorrows. He'll take all of them on. Did you hear that? It leads to salvation and a freedom from regret. That may not be for all of you, but I know for me and many of you, if, you res if this resonates with you, like, can you imagine a life with zero regret? Can you imagine a life really that was exactly that? You know, what'd you do in the last 10 years? Everything I wanted to. <sighs> Nailed it. Perfect. Right? Can, can you imagine that? That's what Jesus is offering. Yeah, we grieve over what's broken, we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, and he receives us. Now, the kingdom he describes. Uh, I'll just 
very briefly give a crash course for this because we're going to unpack this over the next months as we dive into the rest of Matthew in terms of Jesus' teaching and even his parables about this kingdom, right? The mustard seed, right? But in this case, the, the picture of kingship is, is in many ways like a, it's a story of the entirety of the Bible. The, the first story of the Bible, the, the picture of Adam and Eve in a garden in this perfect, perfect harmony and communion with the Lord, it teaches us many things about who God is and what, and what human beings are like. And, and one of the main things that it teaches is that in the beginning, the, the first story is about a stewardship that God entrusted to Adam to perfectly walk in communion with God and have a stewardship over the garden. It was a stewardship of love and service and care. He, he would nurture and he would care for the garden. And so the good news of Jesus, the, this good news of this kingdom, this, this good news that, that we're meant to in, turn from something and, and submit ourselves to this king, I know for many of us, it doesn't sound like good news. right? Like, just imagine if I said to you, hey, good news I'm going to be king over your life. I'm going to follow you around every day, and I'm going to rule over all the areas of your life. Yeah, you're just going to do what I say, right? So we think of kingship, and that's what we think of, because we think, man, that's, that's terrible. That sounds awful. And, and all the flaws and sins of that king or enemy, which is like paid for by the subjects. Do you hear it? Do you hear the kingdom is upside down here? All of the flaws and sins of the subject are paid for by this king. And so our flawed views of kingship are, and rule and reign are, are messed up by sin. And we, what we find here is a perfect king, a king who says, come and follow me, come and be with me, be under my reign and rule. I'm a good king. I won't harm you. In fact, I will take all the harm that's coming your way. And so the good news of this kingdom can be summarized in this way, that Jesus, fulfilling this story of, of, of a failed kingship from the garden, right? To judges, to the kings, to you name it. All of these failed king stories find their fulfillment in Jesus, such that we believe that the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus is the king who wins salvation for his people. That's the good news. The good news is of a kingdom that gives us hope and grace personally, that atones for our sins, it heals and justifies us in our sin and also brings cosmic redemption, cosmic renewal. Everything that is broken at the end of this story, the king will come and heal. Behold, Jesus says, I make all things new. And that's good news. That's the reason that he can say in verse 18 and call people to himself. He can say to Andrew and to Simon, follow me. Follow me. You see in that second section a picture of, of what it means to be called out of the world and into the tutelage of Jesus, to follow him. And this story, this king who has reign over all things invites people to join him in his kingly reign. That's what, that's what he invites them to do. And that for the rest of the gospel, is what's known as discipleship. That is, from, from, from this point on, after Jesus calls these men to follow him, they are known as disciples. The earliest church called them apostles. But we think of following Jesus as that. This is a paradigm right here. We have this little picture of what following Jesus looks like, to drop everything and to be a part of this person's kingdom. That's, that's it. It's that simple. And the good news is that Jesus 
calls out these people. Look at the three things he does here. One, he calls them. That's significant for a few reasons. Uh, it's unlikely that a university or some prominent school calls you, right? They don't send you an application. If so, wow, you're doing something, right? It goes the other way around. Students submit themselves to the teacher. Students apply, right? Students seek out and, and, and want the approval of the teacher, right? You, you apply to a university. You apply to an apprenticeship, right? Like the student is the one who submits to it. And the teacher, in many ways, measures and weighs, like, okay, this is how successful I think you'll be, and, and, and decides whether you should come in or not. But notice this. Jesus always takes the initiative. Jesus always takes the initiative. It's the beauty of the gospel. The Apostle Paul tells us later that it was while we were dead in our sins, it was while we were helpless in our trespasses, that was when Christ died for us. This is incredibly important for, for many of you, maybe if you come from a fairly religious background, and down deep, the rhythm of self-righteousness that rules your own life is, I got to get my act together and then God will love me. Maybe you'll never say that, but you live it. That's why you lie and hide your sin. It's, it's why you're terrified of what people think of you. That's why you are obsessed with how you appear to the world. Underneath that, underneath that is a belief that is undermined by what Jesus does here. Jesus isn't waiting for you to get yourself together, to get your life together. And the main reason why is because you never will. But Jesus always takes the initiative. Right? He goes to Galilee. He goes to the outsiders. And then he sees what's broken. And he goes, that's the one I want. Th that's it. I'm going to start a worldwide movement. Right? It's going to change the world forever. Who are you going to pick? Well, you know, I've started my recruiting uh, with some blue-collar dudes in the Sea of Galilee. And this is how this begins. Jesus shows he takes the initiative. He calls us to himself. This means that as Christians, this is what we do. We call, people to our, we call people to our Savior. We say, come, follow this Jesus. Hear what he's done for you. Right? And you're like, well, I'm not good enough. I know, me neither. Come on. Right? Like, well, I can't get my life together. Me neither. That's what's great about this guy. Like, like well, I need to fill out an application. No, you don't. Like, do you, do you hear the good news? You hear the good news for the really religious in the room? Jesus has received you. He's done everything that you could never do. Second thing, it says he promises to equip them. This is especially encouraging for, maybe for, the, for the rest of you in the room. They're like, you're like, okay, fine, but how on earth is God going to use me? Right? How is he going to use my story, my, you know, my lack or my insecurities, my flaws and failures? Right? And I love it. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't cover any of that. He's just like, don't you worry. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll do this. Trust me. I got this. And then thirdly, he commissions them. Follow me, verse 19, and I will make you fishers of men. Join me, and I will show you what your job's really about. Join me, and I will give you everything you need to be all that I've created you to be. And he starts a magnetic movement with it. Now, I, I, I point this out. Um, there's, there's a few things, I think, are, that are practical for us. If we want to follow Jesus faithfully and hear this good news, there are a few principles to glean here. One, we break with old loyalties and take Jesus' mission as our own. You've maybe heard me say this before. This is where I get it. It is 
there is no shock uh, if you tell someone I'm moving, right? A big deal. I'm, I'm moving to another place. And one of the two reasons is a job, right? A career or family. Like no one will question those things. It, it's, it's really tough because many of you have come to Sioux Falls because of work. And I share, with you with this, I share this with you regularly, but that means that kind of like the, the narrative in our city is that the good life is through work, right? And so you could move at any given moment and be like, yeah, I'm taking this job in this other town. And people will be like, oh, that's, damn, that's unfortunate. I'll miss you, but that makes sense, right? Why wouldn't you do that? Work is an incredibly important thing. You should definitely move your life and build it around your career. Or family. Hey, we're moving to be closer to family. Or moving to get away from family, maybe. I don't know. Could, could go either way, I guess. Either one would probably be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's totally normal. Those are two reasonable things to build your life around. Those are completely, totally, socially acceptable things to build your life around. No one will challenge it. No one will say you shouldn't do it. No one will call you out of it except Jesus. Just imagine You've got, I mean, look how stark it is. Verse 22, it talks of James and John. Side note, any of the, if you're like anybody, any younger brothers or younger siblings in the room, don't you love James, the son of Zebedee, and then John, James's brother, right? Like, anyone ever been there? Hi, you know, like, I love it. It explains why John has got a chip on his shoulder and is, anyway, never mind. So in verse 22, immediately they left the boat, and Matthew's clear, like, and their father, right? Like, uh, I don't know if any of you, if I, this, this will hit home for some of you, I don't know if any of you have ever worked with your father or like gone in business with your parents. <laughs> Holy smokes, like, like, peace, I'm out, right? Like, I'm just, just imagine for a moment how that would go, right? Like, hey, dad, I was going to take over the family farm, see ya, right? Like, I was going to take over the business. I know you've built it to pass on to me or to one of our siblings, but by the way, we're both out of here. And Matthew shows, like, immediately, he describes that same word that the Gospel of Mark uses all the time. Immediately, Simon and Andrew left, and immediately, James and John left. They saw something in Jesus that they realized that their career or job or their family could never give them. Now, don't, don't, don't get this wrong. This is a powerful miracle of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit could show you that. But at the very least, Matthew is telling us a story about what it means to love and follow Jesus. One is that he's worth it. And for those of you that, man, the thing holding you back from doing what Jesus has called you to do, the thing holding you back from being all that Jesus has called you to be, it might be a good thing, like a job. And it might be a good thing, like a family. And yet, he says, I'm going to do something that's going to be worth it in a way that those are not. And immediately, they drop those things. It would be a powerful and amazing thing, right, to tell people, hey, why do you live where you live? Why do you do what you do to say, Jesus called me to it? Hey, I'm going to be a part of what Jesus is doing, X, right? help plant a church or help be a part of a movement, a gospel movement in some place, right? And when people say, why are you going? And you go like, Jesus is calling me there. And they'll ask you a few things. Do you have family there? Not biological. But don't worry, Jesus. 
Jesus says he's going to be with me. He's going to give me an eternal family that we'll start to see on earth. Well, do you, what about jobs there? Like, I'll figure that out. The Lord's going to provide. The Lord's going to do what needs to be done. I say that because this is a paradigm-shifting view of what it means to follow Jesus. It means that even if the job you have and the family you have is not an accident, those are simply means or the context in which Jesus has called you to follow him. But we regularly, I say this, we regularly think, oh, I can have this and then stack Jesus on top of it. And Matthew says, no, you have to leave those things. Now, make no mistake, chapters later, we're going to meet Peter's mother-in-law, right? So evidently he's sort of close, right? Um, or maybe it's ironic of all the people that you know, were angry about it. His mother-in-law wasn't one of them. I don't know. But, but what this looks like for you may vary. But Matthew says one thing is sure. Jesus will call you to let go of those things, to grip tightly to him. And what we find here is that it's worth it. But notice also in that phrase, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. This is, this is incredibly important for our church when we think about valuing mission as a church. The, the word you'll hear is, use is evangelism, right? It's just a really big fancy word for gospeling. If gospel was a verb, that's what evangelism would be. We gospel, we share good news, we declare the good news of the kingdom. And as a result, the very first thing that Jesus says that these people will be doing is that they will be gospeling others and so calling people to follow Jesus is not advanced Christianity. It is the ABCs of following Jesus. This is so important. So many of you are like, man, I, I don't know how to share the good news with people, right? I don't know anything about Jesus. And I would say, that's a really great place to start, right? To the, to the person who you meet, the people you, in your family, the people you work with, the people in your sphere to go, hey, I just want to start, I don't know a whole lot about this Jesus. It's one of my favorite stories. Remember in the Gospel of John, right? The man who was healed, and, uh, and they're, they're trying to like track, you know, trick him and trick Jesus and be like, yeah, Jesus can't do this. He's casting out, you know, he's like, he's a sinner. And they come to me like, well, we know. They're trying to trip him up in his words. Like, we know the man who healed you is a sinner. And what does the man say? Whether this man is a sinner or not, I don't know. All I know is I used to be blind, and now I'm not blind, Right? Right? Now, now, just think about that for a moment, right? He should have said a much more theologically and biblically astute thing, shouldn't he? Shouldn't he have said, like, Jesus is the perfect son of man. He is the perfect son of God. He is without sin, without blemish, right? He should have said that. That's maybe what you would say. But he didn't. He just rolled with what he knew. This is what I used to be, and this is what Jesus has made me. And so notice, that's, that's where we start. Does that sound foolish? Will you sound ignorant? Absolutely. That's the point. Jesus goes to the ignorant. They, they goes to the, will you sound like a, a hick from the boonies? Probably. But that's the point. That's where Jesus starts, and that's what Jesus delights to use. Look, if your wicked smarts would like save people, then that's great, but the story would be about you. If all you have is a story about I met Jesus and I'm not the same, you should come and meet him too, then Jesus gets all the glory. The remark, like, don't you love the first chapters of the book of Acts? The remarkable thing about the first disciples, like these are uneducated men. They're not that bright, right? It makes sense. I mean, you, you, right? This is, I don't know how many college degrees you need to, to go fishing, right? Like, not a lot. 
But they remarked, like, these are uneducated men, but here's the one thing we can't deny. They've been with Jesus. So notice, for us, don't wait. If anyone calls you in a way like, hey, hey be a Christian and, and just stock up on knowledge so that you can, like, pound that on people and have all the answers to all the questions, you don't need to those, have those things. Like the man who was healed by Jesus, you and I, healed by Jesus, can say, hey, this is what I was, and this is what I am. And they'll say, well, that's really dumb. I know. I know. You should meet him. So, the last section. These people have been called to follow Jesus. And then what we see is this compelling, crowd-drawing story of healing. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You hear that again? That good news. I'm a king. I'm coming. This is what my kingdom looks like. It looks like healing and restoration. Now, he says every disease and every affliction among the people. That doesn't mean that there were like no people left right, sick or there was no people left with any maladies. He's talking about the comprehensive nature of Jesus' ability to heal. That he, there was nothing that he couldn't heal. There was nothing that he saw that he wasn't able to heal. And so, verse 24, he became famous. became famous. And people started bringing him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, pains, and oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and healed them. This is phenomenal, isn't it? Because most, I mean, the average junior high student or middle school student knows more about medicine and biology than most of the people writing and reading this book. Like, you and I have more knowledge of the human body through science and advancements in medicine that, than any of these people would have had. And so just think for a minute, roll back the clock to where if you got sick with something, especially something that was pretty devastating, that became your identity from then on out. And that's the way you see most of these maladies described in the New Testament. This person wasn't just paralyzed, they were a paralytic, right? It becomes their very nature, it becomes their very identity. It, that malady, it, it becomes something that absolutely controls their destiny, and then Jesus comes along, and Jesus comes along and begins to bring his kingdom to the earth and starts to make things new so that you'll, be, you'll see how powerful and how amazing and how gracious he is. And so he preaches this good news of a kingdom. Come, live in this kingdom. Well, what do you do in a kingdom? It's simple, really. You live, you thrive, right? You rest in the security of the king. You work within the walls of his kingdom, safe and secure. This might even be helpful, right? You're enthralled with the royal family. That's what you do in a kingdom. You tell stories about the royal family. You take pictures and have paparazzi hired to tell the story of the royal family. The cool part is that the royal family in Christ's kingdom is a church. And we're enthralled with it. We're blown away by the story of grace in this room. We're blown away by it. Like we're hiring paparazzi to go, like, did you see what God's doing in that person's life? I can't imagine it. It's amazing. What do you not do in a kingdom? Well, one, you don't try to get out. You don't commit treason. You don't try to follow the laws of another king in another kingdom. Right? You don't spread propaganda for enemy kings. And at least in that regard, you also don't disparage the royal family. And he's saying that if you will hear this good news and experience this healing, you will experience an otherworldly peace, an otherworldly restoration. The loyalty to this king will bring you joy and healing and restoration. 
Here's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to commit treason against all the worldly kingdoms that demand your allegiance. Kingdoms of pain and of death. Kingdoms of identities that keep you in prison. Kingdoms of words spoken over you and your own life that bring darkness and despair. I'm asking you to break out of those kingdoms. Commit treason against those enemy kings. And respond to this calling to follow this king, to experience healing. You see, after all, that's, that's what he offers them. He doesn't say, you know, go you know, jump into my kingdom in that sense in a way that isn't worth it. Instead, what we see side by side, there is discipleship and there is healing right next to each other. Follow me, people get healed. Follow me, healing. Being called to follow Jesus and being made whole. Here's where I want to end, where Matthew ends here. Jesus is certainly calling you to give up something for him. Every one of you, every last one of you. And I can trust the Holy Spirit here to tell you, I don't really have to go to great lengths to describe what that is. Because the Holy Spirit at work in you has already told you what that is. It might be a list. But you know. You know the things that own you. You know the things that you use to justify all of your actions and decisions. And when I say come and lay that down for Jesus, one of the first questions you'll ask, it's a natural response, is you're wondering if it's worth it. You are. Is it worth it? Right? Do, do I let go of this thing? Am I going to be safe if I do that? Is it worth it? And notice what this story Matthew tells us is an answer to that question. He will fix what is broken in you. He will heal and restore what has been done to you or even the things that you've done to yourself. And so I'll just say here, I don't have to persuade you of this, but Jesus is calling you to lay down something and you already know what it is because you already know that that thing that you're holding on to, it isn't working. It's not, not sometimes. Sometimes it works. But notice, when Jesus says, lay that down, he's saying, lay down something that's killing you and it's holding you back to receive something that will give you life. It may not even be that bad. It might be a job. It might be family. Right? You know, again, that, that, isn't mean, that doesn't mean that some of you are like, oh, sweet, I'm going to like quit my job and like tell my family to go away. Like, that's probably not it, right? Uh, that's not what this is. It's just to say that those things are insufficient sources of joy and identity. And trying to squeeze them to get life and hope and healing out of them. And the places where you maybe don't want to admit this is one of the most exhausting things to do, isn't it? And what does Jesus say? Come to me. What do I get, Jesus? You get me and you get healing. It's not that maybe your family and your job are bad. They probably aren't that bad. It's just that they can't satisfy you. They can't actually heal what's broken in you. They make really bad saviors. And when you look to them in distress, they never really deliver. And he says, come. Stop living for these things. Come, you who walk a dark path. 
and experience bright light shining on you. You've been storing up treasures in the, in the world. Jesus says, fine, I'll help you store up eternal ones. He'll invite you to a fishing hole where you begin to see something multiply around us. The, the light comes to the dark and forgotten places. The light comes to heal and to restore, and it propels from there. Remember this particular thing that started in Galilee? So that last verse, the last two verses of Matthew that I've begun with, here's the Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, right before that, this amazing movement. Look at this. Now the 11 disciples went to where? Holy smokes. This movement that multiplied from there across, right, across, across, across oceans and continents to where people in this room would compel you to see it and believe it was started by a bunch of nobodies who needed to be healed and it multiplied from there. And it started there. Friend, be encouraged. All the places where you experience the fruit of your own sin or even the scars of others' sin, Jesus is coming to make them new. He is the Lord. He is the King. But He's the Lord and King who heals. And here's what He's offering. Side by side, following Him is wholeness. And He will call them. Come, die. Come, follow me. It may cost you everything. But the motivation to do so is that he will heal. And wouldn't you like that? Isn't your, in the depths of your soul, don't you cry out and say, man, I'd give anything if someone would fix this. <laughs> I'd give anything if someone would fix this about me. I'd give anything if someone would repair this thing. And mysteriously and miraculously, Jesus begins to do what we could not. Here's what I know. Jesus is calling each and every one of you to leave something behind for him. And you're wavering, probably because you don't know how much of a need you have to be healed. But friend, when you see the healing that is in his wings, the healing that can make you whole by taking our place as the right and perfect sacrifice, taking the cross that we deserved and being resurrected, then you realize whatever you're holding on, whatever you're gripping to, whatever he's calling you to leave, when you see the majesty of Jesus and feel the healing he gives, letting go becomes a no-brainer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that Jesus, in very simple and clear ways, calls us out of the lives we have and into a glorious life. God, thank you that this movement that you began here is Is something anybody can get in on. God, thank you that you initiate. And Jesus, you call us to yourselves. And there's nothing that we lay down that you don't give us eternally more than we can ask or imagine in return. Thank you, Lord, for this. God, we confess that we, we feel the weight of the thing that controls and owns our lives. We feel the weight of the things that hold us back from following you and experiencing your presence more deeply. So might you make it clear to us this morning, the place where we long for renewal, beyond the river, the outskirts, that's the place you've come to bring life. That's the place you've come to heal. That's the place you've come to restore. So for those in the room, maybe they wouldn't call themselves Christians or believers or they're not sure, thank you for bringing them here. 
Might even now you begin to grant them peace and hope. They don't have to go on living in helpless and hopeless ways. They can lay those down and experience life and hope in you. Give them the miracle of faith. They would see how beautiful you are. For the rest of us, Lord, we, maybe we've heard and we know this good news and we've begun to experience healing, but Lord, we have despair. There are things in this life that hurt. There are things that we want you to come and fix. Right now, would you comfort us? Would you remind us there's, there's nothing broken in our lives that you won't one day make new and fix? There's nothing that's missing in our life that you won't one day come and make whole and complete. Fill us now with yourselves with yourself. Fill us with yourself and heal us with your presence. Restore us by the power of your spirit. Give us the ability to let go of the things that keep us from experiencing the joy and grace you offer to us in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.